Welcome, gang. You're listening to the Help My Marketing podcast, where we talk all things marketing, the sexy things, the not-so-sexy things, the fun stuff, the serious stuff, basically all the things that make you a better marketer. Not just theory-based, everything we discuss on this podcast has been tried, tested, and validated by the team at Orbit over the last five years as we build successful campaigns for our agency clients in a whole range of industries. Don't forget, if you'd like help with your campaigns, go to orbitmarketing.com.au and reach out for a chat with one of our experienced marketing experts so we can show you how to bring the sort of attention and leads that could change the game for your business. Hey gang, welcome back. You're listening to episode seven of the Help My Marketing podcast. And I'm more than just a little bit excited today because not only am I joined by our first guest, but we have set the bar very, very high. I'm joined by Jessica Muddit, who is a published author of her book, her memoir, Our Home in Myanmar, which she's going to talk about with us a little bit today. Not only that, she's a freelance journalist whose words appear in, wait for it, The Economist, BBC, GQ, Marie Claire, Sydney Morning Herald, Australian Geographic, and The Guardian, amongst others. So we're talking about somebody with some serious journalistic chops here. Um, So Jess, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me on your show. Um, ah, you are very welcome. Thank you for giving up your time to be with us today. Now, we're going to dive into some PR-related stuff a little bit a little bit later. But first, tell us a little bit about the time that you spent in Myanmar, because there's been so much kind of upheaval in that country. And so, like, I'm particularly really interested to hear about the time you spent there, like what took you there, and what did you do while you were there? Um, I first arrived in Myanmar in 2012, which was still about six years later than what I had originally hoped. I'd always just wanted to go as a tourist because I thought it looked beautiful. Um, But I was living in Bangladesh at the time, and I had a friend who knew Ross Dunkley, who was called the Rupert Murdoch of Asia. And he ran newspapers in Cambodia and Myanmar and Vietnam for a time. So I just wrote to him and said, could I come across and work at the Myanmar Times? Because the media was starting to be liberalized. So... um, well, it wasn't illegal for a start. The Myanmar Times was a weekly, once weekly English language, Myanmar language newspaper. And the only other legal newspaper that was daily was the state-run propaganda rag. So I went there as at the beginning of this really optimistic time when the military were beginning to embrace democracy, what they called a disciplined democracy. So they released Aung San Suu Kyi from house arrest Um, They held by-elections. None of this stuff had happened, you know, in decades. Um, And I was one of a couple of thousand expats who started to arrive in 2012, Um, but it was still a really small community. And I worked at Myanmar Times for about 18 months, and then I went freelance. Um, And I had some really interesting work opportunities. I maintained my journalism throughout, but I also got to work at the British Embassy um, doing a lot of like report writing and presentations. It was like a trade role. Um, And I also worked for the UN doing writing for them and Save the Children. And then during the historic elections of 2015, I worked at the state-run propaganda rag that I just dissed. (laughs) And that was fascinating. I did get a lot of flack. You know, I think my personal brand went down a lot at the time. But as a writer, I wanted to get inside the propaganda machine. So Mm. I wrote a book, Our Home in Myanmar, which is a memoir of the four years that I lived there with my then Bangladeshi husband, Sherpa. So so I guess you're in a really unique position in that you got to see what was happening there sort of firsthand from both sides, though. So if you were working for an independent albeit legal newspaper, then potentially you were reporting from one side. 
and then working for the state-run propaganda rag, reporting from the other side. So, you, so you would have had a really unique perspective on on what was happening. Was it was there real turmoil there at the time, or did that come later? No, there there was turmoil. It was kind of one step forward, two steps back. So, in the lead up to the election, it was quite scary because uh, a lot of people were saying there were rumours that there would be a coup. Um, turns out there wasn't, but we had meetings um, saying, oh, the, the t- uh, chemicals will be moved away from near the newsroom and we're beefing up security. And suddenly there was security guards and things. And I was thinking, well, who's who would attack us? Like we are the government. So, you know, because the government was going to lose the election and then mm-hmm. there would be, you know, the turmoil. So it was touch and go, um, but it was fine until 2021. And then there, there was a true military takeover and all of the um, wonderful democratic changes that occurred have been completely wound back. Right. So I don't think there's even a foreign reporter left in Myanmar. And I know actually there's a Japanese um, photojournalist who was just arrested last week. Wow. Because it's illegal. It's illegal to be a journalist. Journalism is a crime in Myanmar now. Did you ever feel unsafe? Um. Crime is very low in Myanmar and people are extremely honest. And because I, I always felt there was this strong social contract where there was a real sense of decency and Buddhist values, you know, mm. of not thieving. Um, but the military were very unpredictable. Mm. So I had a friend called Phil who ran 50th Street Bar and Cafe, which for a time was the only expat pub. Mm-hmm. He put, now how's this for um, a bit of PR gone wrong? <laughs> He started working at a new bar and he made a Facebook ad for it and he used an image of a psychedelic Buddha with headphones on to advertise cheap drinks and a mob came to his apartment out the front and he got a three-year prison sentence. And he took that Facebook Facebook post down within a couple of hours and apologised. You know, I'm so sorry, I didn't realise the cultural, you know, uh, repercussions, you know, and how this would offend people, but it wasn't good enough. So he got three years, and I think he served 13, cent, uh, 13 months before he was deported back to New Zealand. So when those kinds, of, and that wasn't isolated, um, mm. another tourist unplugged speakers at a monastery and he got thrown in prison <laughs> for disrespect. Um, you could, you could even innocently, you could make a mistake that would be treated extremely seriously if that related to you know, one of the many sensitive issues in Myanmar, which was ethnicity, democracy, Um, Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, people used to only, Aung San Suu Kyi, she was, when I arrived, she was still known as the lady and you did Mm. not speak her name aloud. Wow. Um, So the code name for her was the lady. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You couldn't have a poster of her or anything. They pretended she did not exist because she'd been under house arrest for 15 years. So even though they were supposedly embracing freedoms, like I started the Myanmar Foreign Correspondence Club and it was mm. actually an illegal entity because mm. Myanmar has strange rules about groups of eight or more or, you know, something. Yeah. So I did it very under the radar. I just kept it on Facebook for a long time. We didn't do any talks or anything. Yeah. And I thought, oh gosh, wow. I don't want to go to prison. about living on the edge. Yeah, a little bit, but I have a very, I have a very large risk appetite, or at least I did before I was a parent. Yeah, so yeah. I just went on with my business and kept my fingers crossed. <laughs> great experiences. Um, so, so then, so that was, that was that part of your life. You've written your book. Um, this is, this is not a sales pitch for the book, but where can people get it if they want to have a look at it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is a sales pitch. Um, <laughs> You can get it online, any of the online retailers, and it's at Dimmick's, um, Booktopia, yeah. and wherever you are in the world, just pop it into Google because nowadays it's very easy to get a paperback mm-hmm. or an audiobook. It's an audiobook as well, yeah. or the ebook. Um, yeah, and, and if you have a favorite bookstore and you want to support your bookstores, you could order it from them. Fantastic. Great tip. Um, it's called Our Home in Myanmar. <laughs> Our Home in Myanmar, yeah. Yes. Um, Okay, so you you touched on a really important point there, and that was understanding sort of cultural nuances, not just when you're traveling overseas, but but in your marketing. And so I think that's a really important point for people to remember. Um, 
just we'll just kind of make that point and and car park it there. But it can get you. I think we've all seen examples of you know businesses who post something on social media that they thought was really funny and it's exploded in their face. Maybe not to that extent where you end up with a jail term, but you do. You've got to be so careful, haven't you, with um with with what you do and what you say. So tell us what you're doing now then. Um, well, I'm working on my second book, um, which is another travel memoir, yeah. and it's about um, I travelled overland from Cambodia to Pakistan when I was in my mid-20s, and it was before there was Facebook or anything like that. Yeah. And I went to Tibet and had six months in India and so a couple of months in China, and it was it was really interesting. So I'm writing that, but um, that's mostly just early morning and weekend work. Yeah. So my bread and butter, you could say, is freelance journalism. Mm -hmm. Um, so I write for, um, I write mostly business, lifestyle, technology, yeah. um, health, and I love that. And uh -huh. I write for, um, BBC. I've just started writing for Forbes because they've launched in Australia, uh -huh. um, CNN, and I have done economist intelligence unit and whoever else will have me, I will write for. <laughs> um, okay. So that's actually a really nice segue. For, so let, let's, I guess, turn this a little bit and let's turn it towards marketing and, and PR and, and some things that our listeners uh, can kind of implement or think about implementing into their business. Um, in terms of PR, the, firstly, let's define it because I feel like a lot of business owners think that the term PR or public relations and free advertising are kind of interchangeable and they're sort of not, you know, I think a lot of business owners feel like, oh, I've got this great new product or this new service or this event and a newspaper or a magazine or a website should write a story about it, but really they need to buy an ad if they want to do that. So from a professional's perspective, what is public relations? Well, yeah, that's such an interesting question and it's something I think about all the time. And in journalism, I write a lot of advertorials, you know, native content, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, I treat those, you know, well-paid assignments as I go about writing a journalism article. I write the story. I don't pack it with fluff and praise because I don't think an audience would enjoy reading that anyway. Like advertising has its place. Um, but for something to be newsworthy, there needs to be a component of change. So what is new in news? Mm -hmm. um, now, I'm not sure it's debatable. Is an event new? No, not really. That's pretty run of the mill. But if it was the biggest um, folk music festival Australia's held in, you know, since the days of Woodstock, that's newsworthy. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's kind of not just, you know, every every brand has a new product out or perhaps even a personnel change, but unless it's got, it, you can, you know, in news, it's the, the five W's, the who, what, why, when, where. So when I'm writing a news article, that's what I begin with. And if that's really compelling, um, you know, you ha it's it, that, that first sentence is, is actually reporting facts. So like, you know, um, 400 people last night were caught in a fire in, at a church in Egypt and about 40 of those people have perished. That's, that's your real event type news. But if it's, um, we're a brand and we think we're fantastic, that's not something that, that a journalist is going to pick up yeah. like, or, but it could be an innovation that is, you know, that is solving like, um, is it solving a problem? Often the question, my first question is what problem is your company solving? And if that's a problem that I have not heard another company solving before, that excites me. Right. Okay. So there's got to be something genuinely kind of groundbreaking almost, not just new as in this is a new product, but this is doing something that no other product's done before, or it's doing it in a way that no other product has done before. Yeah, it's the development of something. And so I suppose because I'm a journalist, I answer your question by talking about journalism. Perfect. <laughs> but to me, good PR is reputation management. Mm -hmm. And I did a story for In the Black, which is CPA's member magazine, on personal branding, which I found so enlightening, the experts I spoke to. Mm -hmm. And they were saying personal branding is, um, is your reputation, but it's more about your future reputation. So it's, and it's also about you at your worst moments. So if you have a hissy fit, you know, you're a celebrity and you lose it at a photographer, your personal brand is you at that time. And also when 
when business is interrupted and you're facing a major stress, how do you behave in those really challenging moments? And if you can get through them with, you know, grace and dignity and good manners, your personal brand will soar. But unfortunately we're all human and, um, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. And then, you know, you have horrible cancel culture where then overnight, you know, your share price has plummeted. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so I guess the other the other way that businesses look at or think about PR is in terms of damage control, right? So something happens, maybe you know we do blow up at a photographer, or you know the um, the health department comes in and finds a rat in, a, in the kitchen of our takeaway business, or something like that. And then we think, oh, how do we go about fixing that? How do I get good PR? So, so what you what you're saying is like at, at that point, maybe it's not necessarily too late, but how do you start thinking as a business owner about PR in order to build your personal brand before that happens so that you're creating something that's resilient enough to get through that situation? It's a pretty fickle world that we live in. And I think people's loyalties can, you know, if you slap someone at an awards night, you know, and rightly so, you know, respect kind of goes out the window. Um, I, I mean, the Chinese, the, the the definition the Chinese have have a saying that or within the definition of the word crisis is opportunity, right. and every crisis is an opportunity. So, you know, while there, if if there's a terrible health toll, well then I it, it's not how do we come out of this well, but how do we prevent this ever happening again, and how do we how do we show um, its uh, re- regret. And then, you know, the apology and then the moving on. There's the three the three steps of um, damage control. Right. And I think communication, the, the more, the bigger the disaster is, the more frequent the communication needs to be with the public because that running away, head buried in the sand can come off so wrong. Yeah. You know, you look entitled and arrogant, even if, you know, inside you're dying of shame. Yeah. So I think that is really important. And, you know, great... PR, like I've, I've seen them, you know, some of the responses to the pandemic, some of the brands came out with things that I thought were, were genius, you know, like, um, who the crap toilet, pa- who gives a crap toilet yeah, paper? Right. Like they, we have some, they really stepped up. Yeah. And they're a beloved brand. Mm. Um, but you know, not every brand is like, you know, profit with purpose. I think if you, a good PR team will not seek to, um, avoid blame. I think taking responsibility, stuff happens in life. Like we're not perfect, but, but I think that the honesty and transparency will, well, for a journalist like me, it will work wonders in not dismissing a person outright. Yeah. Okay. So if businesses want to get on the front foot a little bit and they want to start positioning themselves as, you know, authorities in their field, or they want to start building that trust and that respect within the community, how do they go about building relationships with journalists or building relationships with publications so that they can you know potentially become a, a trusted source of information um i i mean i pr stuff really helped me they save me a lot of time and i'm grateful to them when when we're working well um, and they send, send me frequent releases. They know, you know, the topics that I write about. So I had one this morning from an adult film actress in the U- United States. It was her agent. And I was like, I have what, you know, like you don't even know me. Yeah. Um, and you know, you just think, well, that is a scattergun approach. They don't care if I write back and they probably don't even know that they've emailed mm-hmm. me, you know, um, it's a massive mailing list, yeah. but Um, when I, so when I follow up and I say, oh, that, you know, that's interesting. It's just the speed with which they can help me. So then they, you know, they organize the talent, their scheduling whiz, um, everything goes well. They provide headshots of the person that I've spoke Mm -hmm. to some, you know, sometimes they're amazing, like background notes. Um, do you need anything else? Just checking in. And, you know, I expect them to ask me, when's it going to be published? Mm -hmm. And I always say, you know, I'll send you a link to the article. And then we have a nice, when that article is sent, because I think it's important for me to keep my word on that. They might say, oh, you know, we saw it this morning or whatever. And we're, you know, we're really happy with it. And then sometimes they say like, oh, I have another client. Like, would you, and they've just done this, this, and this development. Would you like to interview them? 
And then sometimes, I mean, it depends on what my editors, you know, would like, but sometimes we've got, I have, I've said, okay, yes, I do need a public sector expert. I'll contact you in five weeks because I know there's going to be an opportunity mm -hmm. request. And then we did. So that's, that's how we did it. And they're just a pleasure to work yeah, with. Yeah. Okay. So, so I guess like from your point of view, it's about whomever is sending information to you. It's about them understanding what it is that you do. Like you mentioned the areas that you write yeah. about. And so it's business, it's health, it's not adult entertainment, right? So it's, <laughs> it's about under, understanding, yeah. I guess it's, is it about problem solving? It's, it's about understanding what does this journalist write about and how can I help them pitch something to their editor potentially? Yeah. That's got a newsworthy angle. Yeah, and the um, you know often they'll start with oh I read your great article on you know XX for you know whatever magazine and I'm like you know me you know you know people well begin with flattery yeah. and then you know start <laughs> totally off. yeah yeah um, but that shows immediately that they know who I am there's mm. no you know there's no sort of spray and pray approach to the kind of email contacts and then. Like often they'll follow up, but I do get so many that if it's not of interest, even if I have a working relationship with someone, I won't reply. Mm -hmm. And I always, I know as a journalist, when I pitch and an editor doesn't reply, I feel miffed about that if I think, come on, we've worked together before. But in, in the media industry, it's impossible. We'd spend all day replying to each other and never write mm. anything or do anything. So I find the professional ones, they might, um, which is the majority, by the way, they, they will follow up. And I think that's the conscientious thing to do, at which point I might just say, I don't have capacity right mm -hmm. now. Um, and that, but there's no hustling beyond that. Yeah. And then it's just, you know, hopefully next time there'll be another, we'll have a better fit. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's, um, that's something that business owners are probably not really good at in lots of capacities is follow up. So, so what you're saying is it's okay to, to give a bit of a nudge, but don't, don't become a pest. Otherwise you'll kind of get your email address blocked. Yeah. I mean, I have, you know, I do receive calls and I received one this week from a PR person, a phone call. Mm -hmm. And I know some journalists, cause I read their tweets, they don't like it. They don't like being phoned up or sometimes PR people send the email and then phone up within 15 minutes, which is a bit, you know, it's a bit, unless it's breaking mm. news, um, probably don't do that. I don't mind because sometimes a conversation is just quick and effective, but it very rarely happens and it would bug me if it was a lot. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so this is not the first time that you and I have spoken, um, and it's really fun to have the shoe on the other foot this time because last time you you interviewed me, um, and 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 I found the opportunity where we spoke last time through Source Bottle. Um, what Ooh. other? So, where else should should people be be looking in order to find those kind of opportunities, rather than just well, kind I... of reaching straight out to someone with a bit of a hope and a prayer? Yeah, I, I mean, I was grasping at straws when I still remember the day someone told me about Source Bottle. It was another freelance journalist because I was putting stuff up on my Facebook page. Hey, friends, does anyone have a red house and you've recently painted it blue, you know, and getting cricket? Yeah. Source Bottle is my best friend for sources. Um, if it's of a certain topic, because it allows me to read about people's background and then to select the ones that I think will be best, which was you, Simon. Um, and Twitter to a lesser extent. And I don't, I actually don't really like, maybe I'm a bit superstitious from Myanmar, but I don't like publicly discussing my stories mm -hmm. because I also like to keep my cards close to my chest. Like I'm just throwing it out there. Oh, here's a story idea that I think is great. Yeah. Other journalists read about it. You know, someone could, nothing stopping them to go and pitch it, you know, to a rival publication. So I don't really like to do that. Yeah. Um, but if I'm finding a scientist, then I look for their, you know, for their research papers. I also, for me, a really big thing is who's spoken to the media before, because I'm not going to contact um, an extremely busy pediatrician if they have a habit of not giving interviews. Oh. They're just solely focused on their casework. Mm -hmm. But if I see, okay, this person's given an interview and they're quite, you know, going to be interesting nine times out of 10, then I think, okay, they're, you know, they're not hostile to the idea. Yeah. They're worth contacting. But at the same time, you don't want to feature the same voices. Yeah. So a mix is good. For me, LinkedIn is my other best friend because at a glance, you can see, is this person the real deal? Mm -hmm. 
um, are they, do they say interest, do they post interesting things? You know, they're not too, um, softly, softly and just yeah. saying nice things all the time. And it kind of gives you an idea of their personality, um, the way they write and that kind of thing. So, and obviously credentials. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so when you're, when you're looking for who, so if somebody's looking for opportunities, then, you know, platforms like Source Bottle, keep an eye on follow journalists on LinkedIn and Twitter, potentially in case they put call outs. Um, but then you're looking for somebody who's maybe a little bit controversial, somebody who's going to be interesting to well, speak to who's who's not, can we use the word beige, someone who's not too beige? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, if they're too if they're too beige, um, there's not going to be anything quotable. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I'm not in the kind of journalism of like starting fights and yeah. um, you know people getting really riled up. And most well, nine times out of ten, I I need really real top top of their field experts. Mm -hmm. um, and I can see, but I can see also that they're not a recluse that they are happy to engage with the public because that's a different thing as well like some scientists are withdrawn and they don't really yeah. they're just content to do their work yeah so and then also what are, what kind of buzz are they um generating so for me one of the i'll call it a gold nugget was i found i heard about so i also listen to the radio in in the morning um, and I have found some terrific stories from ABC Sydney. And one was a new genetic test that can retrospectively determine if you began life as a twin, but your twin died in the womb. Oh. So I heard this guy talking about it and I scribbled down the notes and then I pitched my editor at BBC and she was like, go for it. Mm. And I found a scientist in Holland who had, she just had one paper on it and there was hardly or very, very specific scientific websites had said this amazing breakthrough. And I was like, this can go mainstream um, because it's, you know, it's so interesting to so many people because a, a ridiculous number of people began life as a twin, wow. but that is unusual. Normally, if there's a like a breakthrough, it will be on 20 websites mm. and then I'll find it. And I'll be like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, I can't write yeah, about it now. You want the scoop. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's really interesting. So so the process of getting something maybe picked up and, and published begins way before you've got something that you think is worth publishing. You need to actually be producing content regularly to show that you are um, – I'm, I'm not really sure how to describe that, but to give you to build some credibility, so that when yeah. somebody like yourself stalks our profile after having received something, you can see, oh, okay, this person, this is not just a one-off, but this person regularly produces content. There is no, yes, I wholeheartedly okay. agree, and there is nothing more of a put off to me than going to their LinkedIn page and seeing this person hasn't posted for a while. Mm. I won't even be bothered. Um, unless they're the only person in the field, right. because I think, well, they're not going to see my message. It's not even practical, you know, to do that. And some people, they're so famous, they don't even use LinkedIn. Yeah. So that's not going to happen anywhere. But um, I just filed a story yesterday for Westpac Wire, and I found that story on Forbes, um, the US site, and it was an op-ed written by the CEO of Rike, the workflow management tool, which I use myself. Mm -hmm. And he coined the term, the hot potato workflow, which is this idea of people just passing work to each other on Slack or, you know, some really unofficial way and going, oh, can you just do that for me? Yeah. And then people ending up really burdened with work. And I was like, that's such a cool idea. So I pitched it to my editor and that's the second story about it. Um, and I, and you know, oh, it'd be great if more people picked it up. I'd be, you know, thrilled. Mm. Um, but those, that's a quirky, cool idea that kind of, immediately you know what he's talking about with that hot potato workflow idea. So you can write a fun but interesting article about a problem and how can we solve this problem. Yeah, okay, right. Um, okay, so Jess, we've heard a little bit about, you know, kind of what you do and, and your really, really interesting story. If our listeners... If our listeners are wanting to reach out to you, what are the kind of services? Because you, you did mention that you write um, advertorial sometimes as well. What are the kind of services that you provide to small business, if any, that some of our listeners might be interested in? 
Um, well, I'm more interviewing small businesses, like innovative tech startups right. and that kind of thing. So when I write advertorial, it's actually right. for magazines. So some of their pages is, you know, the native content. That's what yeah. I'm doing today. Um, and I'm not really, I have, I have done case studies for own home, which is a rent to own scheme because that really interested mm -hmm. me, but I typically only do editorial feature articles. Um, but I always like, so for, for my point of view, for me, a small business is of interest as if I could write about it as a story. Okay. Um, if I think so with own home, the problem that they solve is very few people, unless you have the bank of mum and dad have a deposit for a house. So they say, you don't need a deposit. If you, you know, earn a good salary, you can pay, instead of paying rent, you can move into the property, pay for three years, will buy the property and you can buy it off us in three years, which is so cool, you know. And for so many people, this is, you know, a massive problem yeah, that they've faced. So sure. if, you're, if you're a business doing something like that, I love that. Um, and that's, you know, I'd be, you know, happy to hear from people if, um, you know, they'd like to talk about media or something, but I don't, it's not often just a single source article. It will be, I'll be looking at the issue of say housing unaffordability and I might need a case study, um, or, but I won't just speak to one business. I'll speak to multiple people approaching the pro the problem from different angles. Yeah. Okay. All right. So then, so then it's more that, um, I'm thinking of how we can help you for as a way of saying thank you for your time on the podcast today. But so I guess it's it's more of um, our our listeners following your profiles, keeping an eye on what you're doing, and seeing if there's anything that pops up there that they might they think they may be able to contribute positively to. So what I'll do is I'll make sure in the show notes that we've got links to all of your profiles. Um, thank you. Just before we wrap up, though. Tell us a little bit about how you've, I guess, implemented some of, you know, your own advice and done PR for your book. Well, I self-published my book, so it was a team of one, um, <laughs> which was interesting, but I'm a journalist, right? So I had yeah. contacts and I thought I'll yeah. just give it a go. Um, I did have a publicist in New Zealand and she got me on breakfast TV, which was wow. completely amazing. Yeah. And I was so nervous beforehand cause it was live <laughs> television. Um, and she was just, you know, having someone, you know, she was backing me and, you know, very supportive. That was really nice. Um, but I just, I'm used to contacting people. I don't know. That's what I do all the time. And I have a fairly thick skin because, you know, often my pitches do go unanswered. So I just pitched the book everywhere I could. And I had some pretty good success. Like I was really happy that an excerpt ran in the Sydney Morning Herald Sunday magazine. Um, and, you know, Reader's Digest, um, who I had no prior contact with, but some of the editors I knew, and if they thought it would interest their audience, um, they, you know, they would at least consider it. So that was really nice. Um, but it is, it is tricky um, sometimes writing about a country in turmoil and there's a lot of people who are hurting and sometimes I have to be very careful. I don't want to be seen to be flogging my book every time Myanmar comes yeah. up on the news because people are being burned alive. It is really grotesque, you know, horrible stuff and it would be really distasteful um, and a terrible business strategy for me to do that. But sometimes you have to, it's, it's not always black and white and it's mm. very difficult. And so on my books, one year anniversary, I had this big sales spike on Amazon and I got to like 293 out of 6 million books and I was really happy. And I posted that on Twitter, but then there was a Twitter storm back at me, um, people saying, you know, why are you celebrating all this money? So-called money <laughs> you're mm. making from book sales. And there's people in Myanmar who are, you know, starving. And I said, look, I donate a dollar of every copy I sell. I, you can see I've donated, you know, $500 blocks. Yeah. Um, but it still becomes very difficult. And, you know, to have had someone in PR help me during those difficult moments would be helpful because <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not easy to do. But I'm sort of, I just try, I try to separate it so I don't hashtag yeah. what's happening yeah. in Myanmar. 
which is like mm-hmm. the news alert anytime mm-hmm. I mention my book. And I just try, I try to be respectful, but sometimes, you know, we all know on Twitter, the tone can be misinterpreted. Or oh, and keyboard warriors will just so, find anything to grab a hold of so that they can start some kind of argument. For sure. Yeah, there's a lot, and there's a lot of rivalry and that kind yeah. of thing. But um, you know, you just you just have to keep going. I think the I'm also conscious of I want to be a little bit discoverable. I don't want to saturate, and maybe people already <laughs> think I do. <laughs> but it's the frequency, like you know, it's the same old faces yeah. on your feed, and I don't want to be always flogging my book because that's so yeah. irritating. But at the same time, I'm conscious of the fact no one else is going to do it except for me. And I don't think I'm ever completely confident after posting. I'm always like, should I have posted that? I'm not sure. And then I just think, don't overthink it. You know, it's your life. There's always going to be haters and don't shy away out of fear of possible haters. Like that would be a sad approach. What's the saying? Fear kills more dreams than something ever can. And I, I think you're right. You know, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to be brave enough to just kind of show up and actually um, have a go. And it's difficult for you, I guess, because, you know, the situation there is probably way more sensitive now than it was when you were there and when you were writing your book. But the commercial reality is you self-published this book and so you need to sell it. Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I want it to be read. As I said to someone on Twitter, I'm not going to apologize for my book being read because I believe it's helping to yeah. spread awareness. Um, but yes, any sign of being seen to profit from a humanitarian disaster is mm. terrible. But when I, as I finished the book, the coup happened. So I didn't, of course, you know, um, I had no idea and I couldn't write the book now because mm. I'd be too sad, but I just thought it was going to be a kind of lighthearted book, but now it's sort of a historical book because the whole country has gone back to the duck days yeah. of dictatorship. So it's something I'm still learning about. Um, and I don't doubt that there will be further fights <laughs> yeah. online, but I'll just, you know, go into the fight facing them, I guess, yeah. instead of and running so you're, away. So you're really kind of living what you're talking to us about today in terms of public relations, aren't you? It's a fine line that you've got to tread there. Yeah, it really is a fine yeah, line. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and making a poor judgment is, um, is hurtful to people who are really suffering. And it's not just Mm. Burmese people, but it is them primarily. But, you know, my network, there's a lot of people who've lived in Myanmar for a very long time and may still live there or had to flee. Um, so everyone's really invested. This is a, a country, you know, that I love and other people do. So the other thing is, you know, I'm criticizing it in a sense, aren't I? And one Burmese guy, he said it was hard for me to read. It was an emotional roller coaster because you spoke so truthfully about my country, which is a, a complex, troubled mm. land. So, you know, it is. It's it's difficult, and I don't I don't think there's obvious answers. And I guess just over time, I'll read situations as yeah. well as I can. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I, I guess what we're hearing is that there's no there's no sort of hard and fast rules are they you know you really kind of as you said you need to read the situation as it as it um unfolds and people need to be mindful people need to be mindful and not tone deaf of what's happening in our you know in our environment i guess in our ecosystem when they are looking for ways of of promoting themselves i'm I'm always going to tie this back to, to to business and marketing when they when they when they are looking for opportunities to promote themselves to not be tone deaf and to not say something that even inadvertently is really hurtful and and and, um offensive yeah i mean and it can be there can be a lot of noise that you need to protect Mm. yourself from as well i mean not to say that like you know this is in the public domain really or anything but i mean like so i also tried blocking there were a few trolls on twitter and I, I blocked a couple of them. I thought, I'm just not going to think about them or continue to see it. And then someone sent me a screenshot of he created a thread based on me having blocked him. <laughs> so I was like, okay, blocking backfires. So I unblocked him. And, but I was, you know, fielding accusations of, you know, what is an outsider doing? Even writing, you have no right even to write about our country. And what could you tell us that we mm. don't already know? And this is just... A lot of people call my book the Eat, Pray, Love book, which I find really mm. sexist as well. Um, they assume it's going to be this lighthearted, 
backpacker having a few drinks right. at the bar, kind of a book. Um, and they haven't they haven't read it because I think that's not really mm. fair. But so there is some sexism as well, but also just heated emotions about you know a country in a desperate situation. But I always try to say like we're on the same side. Like we're not enemies. The yeah. enemy is the military. But I you know I make that argument. <laughs> it's not always convincing. Yeah. I have to say. Um. All right. So if you could give one final tip. For people who are looking or thinking about where do they find opportunities to, or, or where do they look to find PR opportunities, what would that one tip be? Well, going back to mm. who gives a crap yeah. again, um, if you're if you're starting a business and you can think of something that in this visual world that we live in that really gets your message across loud and clear. So the founder of Who Gives a Crap, do you, do you remember that he sat on a toilet for 50 hours until they raised no. $50,000? And he wow. filmed it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I just think that commitment, um, I mean, th that kind of an example, that's a real standout mm. example. But if you're shooting that level of um, unforgettable, making a statement, you know, hello yeah. world, here's my business. That's amazing. You know, cause it's putting your money where your yeah. mouth is as well. And also that's a very eccentric thing to do. So I know he's going to be good talent yeah, to speak to. Sure. He's definitely going to be an interesting guy. Um, so I thought that was really, I really admire that. And then, but then again, you have to think carefully because you don't want it to mm. be tokenism or, to be blatantly like a PR yeah. opportunity, you know, cause the optics are amazing. Um, but also mm. on Instagram, I saw an, a couple who got married at like 3000 feet in the air on a net. Oh, wow. And that was kind of going viral on Instagram and they're both professional, um, right. abseilers, but you just can't, you can't mm. scroll past that. So I, I guess it's kind of coming up with that imagery and the story that is really powerful and it's not easy to do if we knew how to do it 100 percent. So right if it was easy everybody would be doing it uh, um are you familiar with i think it was seth godin's book the purple cow yeah yeah so so yeah. that's kind of what you're talking about isn't it something something that's kind yeah. of so out of the ordinary or out of left field that people just cannot look away and it could even be something that's done by a thousand other people or a thousand other businesses, but you've got to do it in a way that's so different that people just cannot look away. And that's where we get what we call earned media, right? Coverage that coverage that oh, comes right. from you having yeah. done something that's earned you coverage in the media where somebody like yourself would look at that and go, Oh my God, that is just, that's so crazy. I've got to talk to them. Yeah, like yeah. a beta honey. And even if that's the founding story, like I would still love to interview the founder of Who Gives mm -hmm. a Crap. I never have, but I just think his, his story. And people regularly say good things about this company. Mm. It's a real standout example. It's just come up in a few conversations lately. Um, so, And it solves oh. a big problem. So I think that's really cool. And also, I mean, bamboo, I think that's another amazing product. Yep. Bamboo tissues bamboo anything you know because it solves this environmental problem but it's not an inferior product um i also interviewed a company they're making plastic out of seaweed and you can regrow mm. seaweed and it grows really yeah. fast like bamboo those kinds of stories um are wonderful i mean and if your business most business founders are passionate about their business and they're just really hardworking and, and inspiring and it's a delight to hear i love hearing founder stories and how they overcame, you know, a lack of time yeah. and resources and no one trusted yeah. them or believed in them. And that's really cool. As a journalist, I love sharing that with audiences because then I think other people will think I could do that too. Like that sounds really hard, but I could do that can, too. Can we then, you mentioned, to, I know I said we were wrapping up. How are you for time? You cool? Yeah. Oh, fine. Yeah, we, let's talk of tokenism for just a second because you you it just sort of triggered for me when you were talking about this company making plastics out of seaweed. Some of the the big brands, right? And we won't name them, but some of the big brands are now producing products that are made from say recycled plastic and talking a lot about it. And I think I don't know what percentage of their product line is actually made out of this recycled plastic. Is this tokenism? Is this them finding an opportunity yeah. to say, look how great we are when the reality is they're still crap, but they've found that like this little greenwashing yeah. opportunity or something. 
Greenwashing, I find it gross and I suspected it existed for a long time before mm -hmm. I heard the term, but I could never name what it was. But I know um, it is it is rampant because every man and his dog, you know, people have, have realised it's important. And so doing things like trying to, like we won't name the energy company that tried to separate its dirty business from its clean business so that it could claim mm -hmm. to have one clean business. The tide is starting to turn. The problem is... You've got to balance all the red tape with actual change and actual good practice. And this is very new. And I think customers can be duped, but I think there's also quite a good like green police yeah. force out there of like citizen journalists who will call BS when they see it and keep questioning. And one thing is single use mm. plastic bags or your so-called so recyclable single use plastic bags. They may be making the problem worse. Mm. You know, almond yeah. milk was another one. Actually, mm, all the water that goes in, if you look at it holistically. But when 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 it's deliberate dishonesty, that is reprehensible. And that's where you, I think your customers will never return. Once you're caught in that kind of Volkswagen type, <laughs> yeah. we're cheating yeah. on our emissions tests. That goes down forever as a case study and what not to do. And they still haven't rebuilt their de their brand damage, um, however many years on it is. So that's a real failure of leadership. But I think small businesses, you mustn't cut corners. Um, Australian consumers, I don't know, I've been doing some work for a consultancy firm and they're saying that there's still a consumer will claim to, to say, I will pay more if it's environmentally and ethically produced. But when it gets to the checkout, they'll still choose. It's called the um, the intention right. gap or something. So I understand, you know, you can't have, you know, four hundred dollar mm. bags of peanuts because people, you know, just don't, we don't, you know, there's a lot of economic yeah. pressures on everyone at the moment. But being as honest as you can and never making a false claim, yeah. just don't make any claim if you've got a great product. You know, uh, would you agree? With absolutely, one hundred percent. Because inevitably you will get found out. If you make a false claim, you will get found out. And I think the age of, you know, marketing spin has gone. Consumers are way more informed than they've ever been. Thank you to social media and the internet. And honesty in advertising yeah. is so important now. Positivity in advertising, in advertising is so important now. You know, we're kind of moving away from that finding a pain point and agitating it and more towards, you know, helping people ach genuinely achieve goals and dreams. Like that's what marketing should be about. We want to be the brand that makes people yeah. feel good about themselves, not the one that makes them feel, you know, less than. And, and so I think, yeah, go on. Yeah. Well, the only thing that I would disagree with, I still, I'm, as a journalist, I like plain speaking and words that mean what, you know, mean yeah. what you say and say what you mean, as Dr. Zeus says. Um, there's, there's a new trend in hair products where if it's to help with frizzy hair, you don't write that it's to help with frizz because frizz has negative connotations. And I'm like, but I want that product. I know, you know, yeah. what's wrong with my hair. Um, I think it's a fine line. So now it's like, you know, volume right. plus or something. And I just think that's a bit silly. Again, it's yeah. a, these are hard questions. Like, when are you going too far in the other direction? But yeah, as you say, those days of, like you better buy this um, fitness equipment, or you'll you know die of <laughs> being overweight or something like that. Fear totally, induced. Yeah, that totally. And that I guess that that's you know maybe not as eloquently as I could have. That's what I was trying to say because traditionally it's been finding a pain point and agitating it and making people feel so fearful that if I don't buy this thing yeah. that's being offered, all the things that something bad's going to happen or I'm going to miss out or people are going to laugh at me. We don't want to make people feel like that. We want to make, let's spin it around and say, well, what, what's the, what, what do you want the outcome to be? How can we help you get there instead? You know, you want the outcome to be yeah. that you're fitter. Or you see, or I think marketing towards parents has a bit to be desired. Like that's often still mm. going the guilt route. And like, I have a three and a half year old and a two year old and I'll sort of like half laugh at some of the products. Like it's all like blazing safety notices across it. Like, you know, this is the only safe option really kind of, and I think some, when it's your first child, it is genuinely stressful. And I myself have this huge fear of choking. Um, but I still feel like all this, like, 
it's gone a bit too far in the other other direction, like mm. organic, um, blah, 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 blah. Like I would joke that on the list of ingredients for something for a kid, there's a list of all the things that are not <laughs> in it is. instead of what is in it. And it's all like no parabens, no blah, 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 blah. And it's like, just, can we just keep it a bit, you know, keep it a bit simple. And also parents fork out so much on their kids because they want the best for their kids. So you don't take advantage of that. But it's really cool on Instagram seeing like there's a lot of accounts now that's like really practical parenting and like give your kids um, a tray and fill it up with dirt and put some water in it and some leaves from the garden and you don't need to buy a mud kitchen. But for the, the majority of the time, it's yeah. by this and this and this, and they grow out of it fast. And maybe the money could be better spent sometimes. So that's one area, you know, like the, mm -hmm. the marketing towards mm -hmm. women and to an extent men, like yeah. that sort of guilt induced, it's, yeah. it's more yeah, negative. I, I, I agree. Um, yeah. And um, I guess we're fortunate uh, at Orbit to work with, with a lot of brands who, who are not kind of who don't like that kind of marketing. Um, but I think you're right. Truth in advertising, more important than it's ever been because consumers are so well-informed and, and taking that other route, you know, um, putting that spin on things or, or saying something that isn't a hundred percent true, it'll come back and it'll bite you in the bum. And, and like the, the yeah. Volkswagen example that you gave, it can take a really long time to come back from that. Some, some brands will never come back from it. Yeah, and if you're a small business and you don't have like a mm. PR department, how do you come back from that? Like that's yeah. just, you know, that's really yeah. you're sort of one and done. That can be one strike and you're out sometimes, you know. Um, so yeah, I think truthfulness is it's always the best approach because I mean, but it, it staggers me. You know, people we hear about people all the time who lie, and for me, it's not that they could get do it; it's that they right. thought they could get away with it. It's nuts to me, but yeah. we're all built differently. But I, I agree. I think, you know, mm. your days are numbered, if not today, maybe in a year. And all the other good work you're doing can be erased, which is yeah. such a shame. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So so that's, um, let, let's leave it on, on that note. Be honest in your advertising. Be positive in your advertising or your marketing. Um, Jess, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you again. Thank you so much for your time. Um, we're going to go live with this this Thursday. So, um, gang, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Jess, any parting words? It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you again, and I hope it's not the last time we work together as a team. One of us is asking the questions. I love it. I'm sure we'll answering. chat again. Jess, thanks very much.